Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Yeah, that was a very long time ago, almost 20 years ago that I was doing powerlifting. And man, I'm a shadow of my former self, I tell you. (laughs) Sometimes it takes... All the energy I have just to get out of bed in the morning (laughs) or to mow my lawn. Yes, wow. Well, good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, amen? This is the day of the Lord, and we will rejoice in it. It is good to be, uh, I don't know about you, but it's when the weather is nice, it's so much more difficult to, to be in a bad mood, you know, but even... Even more importantly, when, when we're in the atmosphere of the saints of God worshiping, it's also very difficult to be in a bad mood because there's something glorious about the saints of God worshiping together and coming together to be the body and to be unified in the faith. Amen? Well, I hope you had a great 4th of July. I know that uh, I did in small part just because of the quantity of watermelon that I consumed. And I don't know if there are any other watermelon fans out there, but I tell you what, there's something glorious about watermelon. You could even make the case, I suppose, that uh, the existence of watermelon might be an argument for the the existence of God because, you know, it's such a great fruit that, uh, you know, it has to have had an amazing creator. You know, if you think about it, in part, the fact that we enjoy food and and that we enjoy the things that we eat, it's not coincidence, It's not coincidence. We don't have to have taste buds that make us like the food that we eat. God created us this way. And just the small things are also very compelling arguments for the existence of God as our creator and that we are his creatures uh, made to worship him. Well, we're going to continue to worship the Lord and, and really study through the book of Ephesians this morning. And we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. But before we do that, I want to make a bit of a shameless plug for uh, Canby Bible College, if I, if I may. Um, I feel I'd be a bit remiss if I didn't let some of you know about some of the course offerings we have, the evening, evening courses available in our fall uh, semester, which actually begins at the end of next month. So it'll be here before you know it. Canby Bible College starts up again August 29th. So if any of you are thinking of taking classes, let's get you signed up and enrolled now. Uh, let's get you in, into our, our, our school. Uh, we have the fall schedule available on our website if you're interested in, in looking at all the course offerings. We have our day classes as well as our night classes at canbybiblecollege.org. There's, God is doing something. God is reviving his people to, to go to the next level and to study a little bit deeper in his word, to prepare uh, to be prepared, really, to be the ministers and the disciples and the followers of Christ that he's called us to be. Uh, in the fall, uh, Bob Myers, who is the, uh, one of the elders at West Salem Foursquare Church, he's been a longtime instructor at CBC, he's going to teach a, on Thursday evenings a class on the fasts and feasts of Israel. So it's going to be a wonderful course looking at the the significance of various fasts that Israel took in the Old Testament, as well as looking at the different feasts 
that Israel practiced and what they, what they did and why, why they were significant not only in a historical and cultural sense but the theological significance of many of the feasts. So that will be available. And then Tuesday evenings I'll be teaching a course in apologetics. Um, this one is a bit different than, than my introduction uh, course in the daytime. This one's going to look at two systems of apologetics. And for those of you who might not know, apologetics is simply the discipline of providing a defense for the Christian faith, why it's reasonable to believe that Christianity is true and uh, to, not, uh, to not shrink back. The Bible says that we're to be witnesses and we're to believe uh, the word of God. And so we're going to look at two main approaches for how we can do that. If you're interested, I'd love to have you in that class. So there are great things that are happening at, at CBC. Continue to pray for us. Continue to pray for the students. Continue to invest into the college. God is raising up uh, emerging ministers uh, to proclaim the truth of his word. And that is extraordinary. Let's go ahead and uh, ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that, uh, that we need you. We need you more than we can even imagine. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to come this morning and to illumin, illuminate the word that you have given us in, in the Bible, Lord. You illuminate this, this word of God to us, Lord, that we might see with spiritual eyes. We confess that we need to be taught by, by you. We don't know everything. In fact, we need you more than, more than anything else. We need your intervention. Holy Spirit, we need you to be our teacher this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, you, that you would speak and you would hover over your word and, and mess with us in a good way. Convict us, uh, challenge us, uh, teach us the things that we need to, to learn. Provoke us into into the life that you've called us to. Holy Spirit, we give you permission to come and to move in our midst and to accomplish what you want, what you want to accomplish in us. Lord Jesus, we declare that you are victorious and we know that you alone are our only hope. You're the only hope for salvation. And so Jesus, we proclaim your truth in this place. We acknowledge it. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you'd be glorified as we hear this word and as we try to live it out in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit as we leave today. Come and have your way in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, if you brought your Bibles, you can go ahead and uh, grab those. We're going to look at a few important passages. And one thing I learned in uh, my first biblical interpretation course that I took when I was in Bible college. And, and my professor said, you know, there's something important called the law of the text. So I'm going to share that this morning. The law of the text. And it's very simple. It goes like this. A text without a context is a pretext. A text without a context is a pretext. To understand any sort of text, we need to understand the surrounding material in order to make sense of that text. And so that's why it's important for us when we study the Word of God that we understand not only what the text is saying, but understand the context surrounding that text that helps us make sense of that text. If not, then we could take it out of context. And so one of the things we're going to do today is just have a time of brief review as we look at what we've already covered 
and, and really the setting of the stage, if you will, to bring us to, to the point where we can understand uh, the text that we're going to look at today in chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Let's remember that this book, the book of Ephesians, was written by the Apostle Paul. And he's written this letter to the church in Ephesus where Luke, uh, in the book of Acts, records that Paul spent over two years in Ephesus uh, preaching and teaching from the Word of God in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. The lecture hall of Tyrannus was just a, an academy. It was a school. It was a place where philosophers would go and teach. And here Paul, in his missionary journeys, hunkered down for a couple years and he was teaching the word of God. It became a missionary epicenter where Paul was raising up missionaries and they were being sent off into these different uh, locations throughout the Roman world. And so Paul had be become very familiar with these people in Ephesus. And in fact, the case could be made that he was, he was only closer to people in Philippi than he was to those in Ephesus because of the relationships that had been established. And so here is Paul writing this letter now, an epistle is simply a letter. It's a correspondence. And oftentimes, scholars will call these epistles situational documents. What does that mean? It's just a document that addressed a certain situation. Like there were certain needs or certain issues that were in great need of being addressed. And so, someone would be asked to write, and they would write. And then the content of that letter was meeting the situation. And so here's Paul who has a vested interest in what's happening in Ephesus. And he realizes, realizes there, that there is discord that is taking place in the church. There's disagreement. There is a certain measure of disunity. And so the bulk of this letter is really hitting on the, the, the crucial theme of unity and unity in the body of Christ, and unity that we have in Christ, okay? So as we read the book of Ephesians, we see it through the lens of unity. And we realize that when Paul wrote this, he was imprisoned, and he's probably writing it somewhere around 61 or 62 A.D. Now, Paul had been converted somewhere around 33, 34 in that area. So this is about, you know, almost 30 years after the fact of, of Paul's conversion, and here he is writing to his friends and those that he knows very closely in Ephesus, and he's encouraging them. One thing that had happened is that many Jews who had gotten saved in the synagogue, uh, they began to preach, and many Gentiles or non-Jews also became saved. They joined the church. And so there were some serious culture, cultural issues that were, that were needing to be ironed out. Non-Jewish believers and Jewish believers were having some, some, uh, some difficulties getting along and trying to be united. In fact, there were some that said, well, since the Jews historically have been the people of God, non-Jews that get saved are also a people of God, but they're two separate peoples of God. And Paul says, wait a second, no, 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 no. And in chapter 3, he spends quite a bit of time saying, no, there are not two peoples of God. There's one people of God. In the book of Romans, Paul, Paul has to say the same thing and say, no, Gentile or non-Jewish believers have been engrafted into the people of God. There is one people of God, there is one Lord. And as we heard Pastor Ron last week talk about this, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? All the ones. And so Paul is trying to make very clear that, no, all who have been saved by grace through faith are 
people of God. They are the church. They are the ecclesia. They are the called out ones. They are the ones that have been born again. It's the collective of the redeemed. And so as we look at this, we need to keep in mind what, what Paul says at the very beginning of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm just going to look at uh, the verses 17 through 19 very quickly. But Paul says this. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, uh, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope. This is important. There's three things he's saying. He wants his friends in Ephesus to know. That they would know the hope. of what The hope to which he has called you. And then to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints. And to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for all of us who, who believe. And this, this actually is a, a present, uh, well, what the Greek is saying here is that for those of us who not just believe, but are believing, are trusting, those of us who have abandoned our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, those of us who are living in the faith and abiding in the faith, those of us who are believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, so Paul is saying here, there's, there, there are three things that are very important. If you're going to understand anything about unity, then, hey, this is what I want for you, church in Ephesus, that you would know, that you would know the hope to which he's called you, that you would know the extent of the Christian life that you've been called to, that you would know the glorious inheritance that Christ has for the, for the saints Paul's saying, I want you to know the full extent of what Christ has done for us so that you might be able to be unified and so that you might know his great and glorious power. Then we look at chapter 2, another key verse, as he basically encapsulates how we are saved. This is, this is a core teaching of the gospel. He says, for by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And then he continues this on. He says, for we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be, and then he says this, our way of life. Three very important things there. Number one, salvation is by grace through faith. By grace, through faith. We can be saved, and as uh, one scholar put it, we're savable. We're savable because of what Jesus has done. He paid the ultimate price. The God-man has made a way so that we might be able to have fellowship with God the Father, through God the Son, by God the Holy Spirit. And this is made possible because of what Jesus has done. Not by any works that we can do to try to earn favor or curry favor with God our Father. Jesus has done it all. Like the song, Jesus paid it all, right? All to him I owe. That's it. He's paid it all. He's made a way. But it doesn't end there. That's part of the gospel. The fact that Christ is our new head and that he 
He is our Savior. Now we are recreated and empowered to be people of good works. Notice that Paul does not put the cart before the horse. He's very careful to put the horse in front of the cart. He doesn't say we're saved by works and then we get grace. He says salvation is by grace. It's conditioned on faith. For all of us who, who respond to his prevenient grace in our lives and we say yes, his, his work is being perfected in us. Can I, can I get an amen? God is at work in us. He is at work in us. Not only to save us, give us positional right standing with God the Father, but also he's committed to work on us, to mature us, to, in Paul's language, to perfect us. And, and we're created unto good works. And not just for good works, but we're saved by grace through faith. And as God is allowed permission to do what he wants in us, he will be given permission to do through us what he wants to do. And that's part of what Paul is really laying the foundation for here. In chapter 3, we see not only the issue of the fact that there are one people of God, but in verse 16, he says another prayer. He says, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit. Okay, so what's he saying here? The key to being uh, empowered in, in, in the perfecting work of God in us is not us trying to work on us, but is the spirit of God working on our inner being. And he continues and says, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Faith is not just belief, it's trust. We trust in him. We believe what he says is, is true, but it leads to trusting that what he says is not only true, and we entrust ourselves to his truth because he is the ground of truth. He says, I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. I'm getting excited. I'm getting excited. How many of us want to be filled with his presence to overflowing? I hope you do, friends. I pray that that becomes a desire that increasingly grows within us that we would ask for his empowerment and his empowering presence to not just fill us, but to overflow us so that God would be glorified. Last week, we saw at the beginning of chapter 4 an important statement that Paul makes. is actually, he says, I therefore, this is verse 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beg you. I mean, this is the apostle Paul, and he's saying, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, Paul knows that there's something vitally essential for the people of God to be abandoned to their God in such a way that their lives begin to resemble the very gospel that they proclaim and to lead lives 
that are in keeping with the grace of Christ being manifest in their life, to lead lives that are worthy of the calling to which each one of us has been called. And it comes through humility and gentleness. We see later in the chapter, setting up for the passage that we're going to look at here in verse 13, he continues and he says, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro, blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. What's he talking about here? He's talking about having a faith that is rooted and grounded and is not subject to, to doubt and fear being tossed to and fro because this person says this, you know, argument, argument against Christ. And so you're like, ah, oh, I'm not sure. But no, it's, it's having a singular focus, a faith that is abounding. It is a Christian maturity that knows that Christ is who he said he is. And that's being rooted in our life. And he says, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped. As each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. See, we as the body of Christ to be built up as the body need Christ to build us up. We cannot build ourselves up. We need God's help, right? He's the first step. He's the one. So how do we do that? I think that's really what, what Paul is leading us to. So what is, what is this all about? It's about allowing the transformative work of Christ to take its effect more and more and more each day in our lives through a process, not just a quick fix, it's not instantaneous. It's a, going back to what he says earlier, it is a way of life. It is a way of life that is opened up to our Lord. You know that at the beginning of Genesis, we see that God creates Adam and Eve. He creates humanity in this astounding statement that we were created in his image and in his likeness. This becomes known as the Imago Dei. That we were created Imago Dei. In the image of God. In the likeness of God. We're not God. But God has given us certain attributes. Which actually reflect his glory. We're created in his image. In his likeness. And this is God's design. This is God's idea. This is God's plan for humanity. And as we know. Adam and Eve fall from grace. And that Imago Dei. That image of God is tainted but not destroyed. The Adam and Eve, as they sin, as they fall, all of a sudden, the self is exalted. The self is put on the throne of our hearts. And that's the default position of humanity. That each of us, when we came into this world, has received this nature that has fallen from grace. One that exalts self Above all. And when we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit has been working on enlightening our, our understanding to the truth of the gospel. And as we are saved, 
The Holy Spirit begins this process instantaneously. We are born again, as the Bible says. We're regenerated. We're given a new spirit. We are actually saved out of fallen humanity and brought into a new way of life. We are, we have a new head. We have a new representative, and that head is Christ. That's Paul, what Paul is in part talking here. And in this process of being saved, we are saved by grace through faith. We have right standing with God the Father because of Christ and the work of Christ. And now comes this process of sanctification, right? That big word, sanctification. That God is committed to perfect us and to sanctify us, which literally just means to set us apart and to make us holy and to put us back together. That in our relationship with God, we can have right standing with him, but we're also giving him permission to sanctify us. So God is at work in us, not only just restoring the image of God that was, just, that was tainted, but if you notice when you read the Bible, especially in the New Testament, where Paul is talking about a new image, you notice that he uses the phrase image of Christ, that we're being made more into the image of Christ. So what starts out as the imago Dei, the image of God, we see points us to the picture of being re-imaged into the image of Christ. So we have the imago Dei, which after the saving work of Christ, now we can have be, be conformed into the imago Christi, the image of Christ. The God-man becomes incarnated so that we can be recreated and formed more and more into the image of Christ. Isn't that amazing? That is extraordinary. That the Holy Spirit, all the while, is the one who was bringing us to Christ. We can't take credit for that. The Spirit of God was relentlessly, relentlessly pursuing us to bring us to Christ. And guess what? He's not finished. He's at work in us to conform us more and more and more into the image of Christ. And so Paul, as I see what he's doing here, he's setting the stage for saying, hey, do you want to know the process? Do you want to know how you get to that being perfected? It's not by human effort. Although it's not devoid of human acknowledgement, the process is one of repentance. The process is one of repentance. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at chapter 4, verse 17. Now that we're, we're at the text, the stage has been set, and Paul is going to give us a picture of of a life of repentance. So this is the, the message, is really, the title of the message would be the role of repentance in the life of a Christian. Notice it's not just the role of repentance in bringing someone to the place of being a Christian, but now that we're Christians, what role does repentance have in our life? Let's look at verse 17. Now this I affirm, Paul says, and insist on in the Lord. This is very, very strong language in the Greek. He's emphatic here. He's saying, listen, this is what I'm contending for, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles live. How? In the futility of their minds. 
They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of what? Ignorance and hardness of heart. That's the key. They have lost all sensitivity and have abandoned themselves to licentiousness. Wow. (laughs) That's not a word we hear very often, is it? Licentiousness. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not, he says, that is not the way you learned Christ. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. Truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts and passions, desires, and to clothe yourselves with the new self, or literally to put on the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Repentance, friends, is that very process of allowing God to help us put on the new self, one that bears righteousness and holiness. So with the remainder of our time, I want to really look at two two statements or two realities we see in this text about repentance. Number one is this. Repentance entails a new way of of thinking. Repentance entails a new way of thinking. What is repentance? We don't hear this term a whole lot in our day and in our culture, but it's a prominent theme in the Old and New Testament. I mean, you can't read the Bible without seeing repeatedly this word repentance. Oftentimes, it's defined as a change in one's thinking that produces a change in one's behavior, okay? So a change of the mind that produces a change in behavior. If you look at the the Hebrew conception of repentance in the Old Testament, you see that it, it describes a turning from and a returning to. A turning from and a returning to. Take, for example, the Hebrew prophets that were raised up by the Lord, to proclaim not only his word, but to bring people back to the very covenant that they had left. And the message that these prophets in their various forms and varieties deliver is this. Turn from those worthless idols and return to the God of the covenant that you have left. Turn from... Worshiping worthless idols that have been created by man and the image of man and return back to the very covenant relationship you had with the creator of the universe. It's a process of turning from and returning to. Returning to the very God who made you. Returning to that relationship that had been agreed upon previously. Returning to a way of life. In the Greek, we see the word repentance used by Peter in, at the beginning of uh, the book of Acts. We see later in the book of Acts, each of the apostles using this word repentance. In Acts 17, Paul declares that those in, in Athens, the key to knowing God is repentance. This word repentance in the Greek is metanoia. Everybody say metanoia. 
Kind of fun, huh? A little, little Greek a week won't hurt anybody. That's my philosophy. A little biblical Greek won't hurt you. Metanoia is so powerful. Understanding this conception of repentance, for me, was a game changer. It helped me to understand really what, what quality of life we're called to. Repentance, metanoia, is about allowing God to change not just our individual thoughts, but to change our entire mental and moral paradigm. It is the recalibrating of our thought grid. It's not just changing the individual thoughts we have, but it's changing the way we think. It's a fundamental change in the way that we think because the way that we think will produce what we think. And so in a sense, what repentance entails here is giving God permission to put our mental paradigm, our thoughts, and our entire grid back into order. To give him permission to do what I I like to call to change our stinking thinking. To change our stinking thinking. There are things that we think that just creep in and we don't realize that it's contrary to the word of God. There are things that we think that just creep in and we're like, whoa, and we need God's help to, to change our thoughts and the way that we think and the entire priority scale of what we think and how we think. Notice that in verse 17 he says this, that you're to no longer live as the Gentiles live. First I want to clarify, again he's writing to Gentiles and or non-Jews and Jews in Ephesus. So what he means here is he's using this word Gentiles to refer to unbelieving thought. Unbelieving thought is contrast to believing thought. Thought as, the, as we are given, as we are born into this life, fallen humanity type of thinking, contrasted with being born again and kingdom way of thinking. They are completely contrasted here. This word futility literally means emptiness and purposelessness. Unbelieving thought has no grounded, rooted purpose. It's empty, it's void, it's vacuous. All it does is seek pleasure for itself. And Paul says, that's not what we're called to. We're called to something great, greater than that. Notice in verse 18 how he connects ignorance with the hardness of heart. You know, there's, there's an important thing here. There's a very close connection between our hearts and our minds. How the biblical authors describe our hearts and our minds, it's, it's very close. There's a very thin line of demarcation there. There's something about the inner self that Paul is talking about here. That, that when we come to Christ, there's this process of putting in us a new way of thinking. A way of thinking that is kingdom thinking. A way of thinking that is later in another epistle described by Paul as the mind of Christ. In 1 Corinthians, remember this, the Corinthian church was really struggling in ways that were uh, too numerous to count. And in this correspondence Paul has with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 16, listen to what he says. Look at the dynamic of, of what 
the mental, the life of the mind is here between the, the saved and an unsaved way of thinking. He says in verse 10, the spirit searches all things, talking about the Holy Spirit, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Let me say that again. So that we may understand what God has freely given us. Past tense. It's a done deal. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It's accomplished. What Christ has already accomplished for us, this is what the Holy Spirit is at work in us to see the glorious and rich inheritance that Christ has already provided for the saints of God. What he has already freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. And this word Spirit-taught is, is literally Spirit-taught. It is things, it's the type of words that only God himself can make known to us. The truth of his word. The person without the spirit, Paul says, does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For, and he quotes a a line from a hymn here, who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. There's no, no one greater than God to teach God. No one instructs God. He's the instructor of all. He's the ground of truth and reality. And how does Paul conclude? He concludes by saying, but we... We have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. He's already accomplished accomplished this for us. As we open up to the Spirit of God, God is at work to give us the mind of Christ. And if you want to kind of compare and contrast this, we could say the mind of fallen Adam is continually being exchanged by the mind of the new Adam. The mind of fallen humanity is being replaced with a new grid, a new way of thinking. Thinking that is in keeping with the word of God. It is the mind of Christ. And think of the connection between ignorance and hardness of heart. There are times when I I feel like, you know, I'm... I'm distracted to the point where my heart is becoming calloused. And I'm so grateful when the Holy Spirit just kind of walks in and says, Hey, Jeremy, you need to to look at this. You're starting to get a little crusty around the edges. Your heart's getting a little hard. And I have to sit and go, Okay, Lord, and go on a journey with the Holy Spirit. I say, Well, what's, what's becoming, you know, crusty? Is there an offense? that I've taken and I should give up to you? Is there some sort of doubt or disappointment that that has allowed part of my heart to get a little hard? Because that's just going to lead to ignorance. It's going to lead to uh, obstructing my my relationship with the Lord. So I go on a a journey, and this is regular. 
This is part of what it means to, to live a life of repentance, is to continually go on the journey with our Lord and Savior who knows everything about us. And the Spirit of God begins to illuminate and make known to us certain parts of us he wants to work on. And we say, okay, Lord, I give you that. And every morning you begin a process. You know, one thing I do often is because I know that I'm desperately in need of God's help. Every, every morning I attempt to pray a prayer and just say, Lord, I need you today. Help me to see as you see and help me to, to do as you would do. Help me to open up myself to you, Holy Spirit, that you would come in and, and, and change my stinking thinking and reveal those things that you know I need to see. And, and, and Holy Spirit, I just want to open up my life to you afresh and anew this morning so that I can have the mind of Christ. Holy Spirit, would you, would you give me the mind of Christ? Because I need the mind of Christ and, and I need your help to put on that new way of thinking, that kingdom thinking. In Isaiah 55 verse 9, God declares and he says this, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. My, my very loose paraphrase of that is, <laughs> I'm so higher than you, you're clueless. You're clueless. I love you, but you have no clue how wise I am, how powerful I am, how awesome I am, how providential I am, how sovereign I am. You don't understand my ways because I'm, I'm an infinite God. And you're a finite creature. But I love you and I'm committed to you. That's my very, very extended paraphrase. But you see, we have to start with that as a, as a starting point. Okay, God, I'm your creature. You're my creator. Your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are way higher than my thoughts. Give me your thoughts. I need your thoughts. You know, Augustine, uh, St. Augustine of Hippo, one of the, he was really the first great theologian. I mean, we had many great, but he he's, was unrivaled in his brilliance as a theologian in the 300s and into the 400s. And St. Augustine said this, he said that we, we can't know truth unless God makes his truth known. In fact, whenever we see anything truly as it is, we're thinking God's thoughts after him because God knows all truth. And we're brought to a place where we're thinking God's thoughts after him. That's also a prayer of mine. It's a prayer for, that I pray over each of you. I pray for our church body to think God's thoughts after him, that we would know his word. We'd be people of the word, that we'd be people that hunger and thirst to know truth as it's only in Jesus Perhaps you've heard the, uh, the two words orthodoxy and orthopraxy. There's a couple Greek words that the early church really hung on to. Orthodoxy basically means right thinking. So what is orthodox is what is in keeping with God's word, what God has said. And if it violates that, if it doesn't line up with that, then that's heterodox. That's not right thinking. Right? That's not right. But something that is grounded in God's word is orthodox. It is true. And we're to have right thinking. But the, the Greeks also, the Greek church said, well, 
we ought to have orthopraxy. We ought to have right living. So right thinking and right living, these are very important sides to the same coin in terms of the Christian life. I remember hearing this statement that right living comes from right thinking and right thinking comes from the word of God. I'll say that again. Right living comes from right thinking and right thinking comes from the word of God. We need God to speak. He's been gracious to give us his word so that we might know what is true. One of the keys I think that Paul is really laying out for the Ephesian church is unity with each other. Unity with each other is going to come when we allow God to change our stinking thinking and we put on the, the mind of Christ so that we can know who we are, we can know who we are together, and we can know who God is that we can know him more fully and more correctly. Thomas Burton once said that uh, mankind is not at peace with his neighbor because he's not at peace with himself. And he's not at peace with himself because he's not at peace with God. Thomas Merton, he says there's, there's something important for us to see that, that our relationship with one another is affected by a relationship with our creator. There is a correlation. There is a correlation. And the spirit of God is at work in us to make us right in our relationship with the Lord that we can have peace with God our Father through the Son by the Spirit so that we can be at peace one with another by his same empowering presence. Number two, and finally, repentance is a discipline of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Repentance is a process of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. In a sense, Paul is saying when we are living lives of repentance, we're walking into life, we're walking into reality, we're walking into we to who we really are in Christ. We're putting on Christ. We're walking into who God says we are. Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher, once prayed this prayer. He says, Now, with your help, O God, I shall become myself. Now, with your help, O God, I shall become myself. You see, Soren Kierkegaard knew, knew something here. He said, he knows that we are who Christ says we are. That is the truth. That is reality. And there's a practice that we can have as, as followers of Christ to know that we are who he says we are. We're not who I think I am or who, who I feel I am. I'm not how my family or my friends or my colleagues say that I am, ultimately, I am who Christ says I am. And that's the stake I'm going to hold on to. That's the stake I'm going to put in the ground. I'm going to hold on to and say that is who I am. That's what I'm going to contend for. Because beliefs about us, outside of us, can, can change. 
But we have to cling to who we are in Christ and, and allow that work of God in us to conform us into that image. You know, Martin Luther, when he wrote the 95 theses that he ended, he ended up nailing to the door of the Wittenberg Church in 1517, October 31st, this is, most historians believe is what sparked the Reformation, what became known as the Reformation. He noticed many, indis- uh, many discrepancies between uh, the doctrines and things that were going on at the time, what was being taught and various practices within the church. He says, hey, we need to debate this. We need to dialogue about this. The very first line that Martin Luther wrote at the beginning of his 95 Theses is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. He called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. I think he, he nailed it in more ways than one. He nailed the theses onto the door, but I think he really, he really got that right. That's what we're called to. Verse 22 that we read, Paul, remember, says this, that we're to put away our former way of life, our old self, corrupt and deluded by its lust, and to what? Be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Does that sound familiar? Paul says something in Romans 12 too. He says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of our mind. Paul understood that the key to our transformation, one of the keys to our transformation, is the renewing of our mind, the exchanging of stinking thinking with kingdom thinking, and understanding who we are in Christ, and putting on the new man, putting off the old man. And in that, when we do that, we're putting on the new man, and we're embracing life as it actually is in Jesus Christ. By putting off the old man, we're saying no, no, no to the lies of the enemy. We're saying no, no, no to fear and doubt. We're saying no, no, no to our former way of life. And we do this empowered by the Spirit of God to have a holy boldness rise up within us because we are redeemed and we are saved and we contend for the faith that we are to have in Christ. Empowered by Him to say no to the old self and to say yes to the new man, to the new self, to the new person who we are in Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen. This is the life we're called to. A life of repentance. A life of acknowledging that we are desperately hopeless without God's intervention. But because of the fact we've been redeemed, we've been set free, we have been given glorious inheritance in Christ, we can put on the new man and live in that reality. That's what he's called us to. My final scripture comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 2 through 5. Paul says this, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by standards of this world. 
For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Any stronghold in our life that is contrary to the word of God, there is divine power to demolish those strongholds in Jesus' name. We are property of Jesus Christ. We are owned by the king. We've been bought with the price, the shed blood of Christ. That's who we say we are because that's who Christ says we are. He goes further and says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We take all stinking thinking and any thought that is contrary to the word of God and we grab it and we lay it down at the foot of the cross and say, that's where you belong because I am who Christ says I am. I pray, I don't know how many times a day for God to show me stinking thinking in my life so that I I pray prayers like this. I say, Lord, When I'm off track, when I'm off base, when I'm thinking thoughts contrary to your word, Holy Spirit, would you come and quicken my understanding? Help me to see where I'm wrong, where I'm astray, so that I can simply take that thought captive by your help, by your guidance, and put it down at the foot of the cross. That is daily. That is life. That is a life of repentance, constantly allowing God to have his rightful place in our thoughts. Jerry Bridges, prolific author. He wrote extensively on the cross. And he used to say that we should preach the gospel to ourselves every day. The gospel is not just for those who have yet to know God. The gospel is for those who know God. We We should preach the gospel every day. We should be reminded every day we wake up of what Jesus has done what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is going to do, and who he says we are. That's the gospel. That's living a life of repentance. Would you bow your heads with me? You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.